This is The Guardian. Today, as the world's attention has been on a war in the Middle East, has Vladimir Putin won the upper hand in Ukraine? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For the past few months, as Ukraine's forces have been fighting a counteroffensive against Russian troops in their country, there's this S-word that Ukrainian leaders have been desperately trying to avoid. This past summer was meant to be one where Ukraine used Western weapons to claim back big cities, liberate hundreds of miles of territory, and maybe even cut off Russian forces inside the country. So the, the, the big question everyone wants to know is, can Ukraine take back the south of the country occupied by Russia? Is that possible? By no means it's possible, it's just a question of time. But that isn't how it's worked out. Ukrainian forces lost up to 20% of their frontline military equipment in the first two weeks of the campaign. And now, in America, Ukraine's biggest supplier of money and weapons, the political winds are shifting. We have an obligation to pursue a foreign policy that advances the security and prosperity of our country, funneling billions of dollars that have to be borrowed into the meat grinder of eastern Ukraine does neither. Winter is freezing the battlefield. The future of the war is suddenly as dark as it's ever been. And even Ukraine's top general has admitted that S-word might now be impossible to ignore. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, has the war in Ukraine reached a stalemate? Luke Harding, you're a senior international correspondent with The Guardian, and you've just come back from Ukraine, where the military's been fighting a counter-offensive for the past few months. What does that actually look like on the ground? It's noisy. It's over a huge area. We're talking about 600 kilometres stretching from Kherson, city liberated in the south of Ukraine last year, now being pulverised by the Russians, all along to the east through Zaporizhia province, which the Russians control. You get near the front line, you hear boom, 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 mostly from Ukrainian outgoing artillery. Occasionally are the whistles of incoming shells from the Russian side. You see military vehicles on the road, soldiers, and you see semi-abandoned villages where most people have fled, but incredibly people are clinging on and trying to kind of live in the middle of a war. We're now getting into the colder months of the year where it becomes harder for troops to break through, to sustain themselves. What's become of that counteroffensive? It followed two successful counteroffensives in the early and middle autumn of last year, where a large chunk of the northeast was liberated by Ukrainian forces about the size of Wales. And also triumphantly, Kherson was returned to Ukraine as well. And then there's been enormous expectation that the Ukrainians would punch through in the south liberate a couple of 
key cities, which are logistics hubs for the Russians. And none of that has happened. What's happened is that the Ukrainian brigades have gone forward, but by vanishingly small amounts, we're talking perhaps 15, 20 miles. I think the reality is the offensive in the south is pretty stuck. We recently got a pretty striking assessment of the success of that offensive from the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian military. How did he characterise it? Well, this is General Valery Zeluzhny, who's the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. He is a legendary figure in Ukraine. Commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, a leader keeping a low profile. He doesn't give very many interviews, but he had talked to The Economist. And essentially, he rather surprisingly acknowledged that the war was at a stalemate and that neither side could really advance. And is this curious mashup between the First World War with trenches, with mud, with the bang of shells, with casualties being transported on stretcher, and 21st century technology-driven war fought by drones. And Zeluzhny's point was that both sides now have got really good drones, and it's impossible to do anything without the other side knowing. So you can't do a sneak attack or an ambush He said both sides were in a stupor, was his word, and that there will not be, as he put it, a deep and beautiful breakthrough. The Russians have had more than a year to mine a defensive line. They have laid the deepest, biggest minefields of anywhere on the planet. We have to understand. We First, we waited too long. They put mines. And at the same time, both sides are using first-person view drones, and you can smash them into an armoured vehicle or a tank and destroy it. Zeluzhny cited the example of Avdiivka, where the Russians at the beginning of October did a massive mechanized assault of the kind that they tried in Kiev in the spring of 2022. And Zeluzhny said that he was watching his screen and within four hours, he saw 140 Russian vehicles burning. And you just see this landscape of smoke and ruined metal of Russian troops fleeing and then being picked off by drones. So essentially, it is very hard at the moment for either side to advance. And it seems like one of the key reasons for that is the drones. Unpack for me how they've changed the way that this battle is being fought. So I spent time on the southern front line with aerial reconnaissance. And you have a team of about seven or eight Ukrainian soldiers under a tree canopy. They've got a little camouflage tent two video screens, they launch a sort of drone with a catapult above a wheat field or a field of sunflowers, and they fly it towards the Russian lines, and they look for targets. But the Russians are very, very good at electronic warfare, and quite often these drones have to come back because they're disabled. So both sides are using electronic countermeasures, both sides are using drones. Mm -hmm. But this reconnaissance from four kilometers up, you can see a soldier's face. Wow. So nothing really is secret, which means that everything is vulnerable. And so what does that mean for the soldiers who are tasked with actually winning territory in this kind of 21st century warfare? They've more or less stopped using tanks. And instead, they are deploying small group formations of 8, 10, 12 soldiers, plus maybe another 5 to medivac casualties, who go out at night and practically on their hands and knees clear minefields Mm -hmm. and advance sometimes 50 metres, sometimes 100 metres, sometimes 500 metres. And that's the only way to do it because any mechanised vehicle is going to be spotted and it's going to be destroyed. Tell me about the kinds of casualties that we see emerging from this kind of fighting. I was in the Donbass region and we took a back road 
driving in full body armor at about 80, 90 miles an hour because this is a road that the Russians routinely shell. They also use drones to try and identify targets. So we were slewing through this muddy track with unharvested sunflower fields to the left to a settlement. So I can't identify it nearby. And by arrangement, we pulled up outside a field hospital and ran inside under hard cover. I then spent about 20 minutes talking to the head doctor and this team of paramedics and doctors swung into action. And there was a really very severely wounded Ukrainian soldier brought in. I thought he was dead or certainly dying. He had a leg wound. His face looked waxy and white. And with really kind of impressive efficiency, they just worked at him. And after about 40 minutes, he was tilted upright. He was groaning by that point. And then they put him in an ambulance along this hairy, scary road back to another hospital. But the point is this, is that people talk about stalemate. It doesn't feel like stalemate. It feels like an enormous, terrible, bloody war. It's the biggest war in Europe since 1945. Half a million men on both sides have been killed or wounded. There are civilians dying every day. This is a terrible, terrible war. The key thing here is stalemate, the idea that neither side can really push each other very far at the moment. How widely shared is General Zaluzny's assessment that that's the stage we're at right now? It's not shared by everybody. And one important person who dissents from this viewpoint is Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president. I believe that today, indeed, the situation is difficult. I don't think that this is a stalemate. He called a press conference and said, actually, Ukraine is going forward. And also, what is the alternative? Because everyone understands that if the Ukrainians stop, Russia will just seize the rest of Ukraine and turn it into a Russian colony. I actually think both are right. I mean, Zeluzhny is right from a sort of military, technological point of view, that without some kind of grand breakthrough, I mean, he talked about the invention of gunpowder, some new super stealth technology, without that, it's going to be hard to advance. Something to change the paradigm. Something to change the paradigm. But at the same time, Zelensky is also right insofar as the Ukrainians are not sitting there scratching their heads. I mean, they do these incredible creative things. One, for example, was a strike using Storm Shadow missiles on the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which was spectacular and looks like it wiped out very many senior Russian officers. So you spent time on the front line. You also spent time in Kyiv. What does this stage of the war, this stalemate, mean for civilians just trying to get on with their lives? Last year, there was a mood of optimism because the expectation is that Kiev would fall, Ukraine would crumble, the Russians would take over. That didn't happen. We've seen an extraordinary and heroic fight back. This year, the mood is darker. It's bleaker. It's angrier. Everybody knows someone who's been killed, personally. One of the people I met in the field hospital on the front line was a woman whose husband was killed in Bakhmut last year. She was called Veronica. And I, I said to her, you know, why are you here where there are guns pounding? And she'd previously been a religious studies teacher. And her husband had been severely wounded and had bled to death. She then decided to become a paramedic. And now she saves other guys in a similar situation to her husband. It was quite a haunting conversation because I sort of said, well, you know, do you follow the news? I mean, do you look at what's going on? And she said, no, I don't follow the news. All I do is my work. 
and that's it. She's just focused on saving lives. You go through Ukrainian cemetery, it's just a sea of blue and yellow flags. There are so many fresh graves. And this is the strategic problem for Ukraine because Vladimir Putin, he is quite happy to sacrifice half a million, one million, two million people. And he knows that Ukraine can't do that. And he's basically calculating on a long conflict, a long war, where sooner or later the West flakes and he can grind out some kind of victory on the battlefield. And so in that sense, given Russia's material advantages, does a stalemate ultimately favour Putin more than it does Ukraine and Vladimir Zelensky? Time favours Vladimir Putin. Time is on his side and time is not on Ukraine's side. There's a fear in Kiev, and it's basically two words, Donald Trump. Hmm. They understand that if Donald Trump comes back as US president in January 2025, within hours, he will cut off all military aid to Ukraine. And the Republican Party, which still treats him as a sort of god, has been moving to a harder and harder anti-Ukrainian position. When I'm back in the White House on day one, we are returning to a foreign policy that puts America's interests first. America's chief interest in Eastern Europe is peace and stability. If Trump does come back with European support, Ukraine might be able to defend against a new, renewed Russian attack. But I think that the possibility of liberating more territory would disappear. So you said that what Ukraine needs is some kind of game-changing weapon. But their likelihood of getting that is not high. And as Donald Trump comes back into view, it's only shrinking. Yeah. I mean, it's quite easy to talk yourself into a really doomy position about Ukraine, its counteroffensive, its prospects of victory. Strangely, whenever I go to Ukraine, I always feel a bit more positive. Just because, despite the grief, despite winter, Ukrainian morale is quite high. Everyone believes in victory. Harder to define what victory is and when it might come. But that's very, very important because Russian morale is quite low. The problem is how you translate that morale into sort of battlefield success. And what's really bedeviled Ukraine this year is the fact that the stuff they've been asking for, tanks, F-16, fighter jets, it's all been arriving late. And on the one hand, the Biden administration has been an existential partner for Ukraine. It's supplied more military stuff than any other country. On Ukraine, I'm asking Congress to make sure we can continue to send Ukraine the weapons they need to defend themselves and their country without interruption. But on the other hand, I think there's been a fear in Joe Biden's mind, and certainly in the mind of Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, that if they give too much to the Ukrainians and Russia collapses, that will cause all sorts of instability and chaos. We were in the midst of a massive effort to ensure that Ukraine would have what it needed to be able to launch this counteroffensive this summer. And that was everything from tanks to Bradley fighting vehicles to further HIMARS and uh, artillery ammunition, other capabilities. F-16s are not part of that mix. But having spent time in Ukraine, there's an enormous war. It feels like it couldn't possibly escalate any further. And I think the kind of Sullivan-Biden hesitation is wrong. Ukraine needs weapons. It needs everything. Uh, it needs it now, but it also needs the Europeans to start investing in basic stuff like building ammunition factories so that six months, 12 months time, Ukraine doesn't run out of bombs.
since October 7, the world's attention has shifted to the Middle East, to what's happening in Israel and in Palestine. What does that mean for the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Inevitably, it means the war in Ukraine gets less attention. But it isn't just media attention. I mean, are we also at risk of having political capital and actual capital funding being diverted to the Middle East rather than to Ukraine? Well, that's certainly how the Republicans see it. They say that aid for Israel is more pressing than it is for Ukraine. But I think that's really just a political choice. I mean, the Israelis, last time I looked, had assembled a thousand main battle tanks. Well, I mean, the Ukrainians would be delighted with a thousand battle tanks. They just don't have that. And so this is a difficult moment in the war. What is the story Ukraine is telling its Western backers in order to keep them invested and more importantly, investing in its cause? What Ukraine is saying is that there is no alternative other than to keep going. The war takes the best of us, the best heroes, the best men, women, children. That's it. But we are not ready to give our freedom to this terrorist Putin. That's it. That's why we are fighting. There's been some whisper saying that the Americans and some of the Europeans were privately saying to Kiev, you might want to think about negotiating with Putin. Now, the US State Department has denied that, but everyone in Ukraine understands that you can't negotiate with Vladimir Putin. Russia's original goal, which is to occupy Ukraine to destroy its culture, its language, its people, is unchanged. So they have to keep fighting. And also they have to try and win Crimea back because Crimea has become this sort of mega garrison used by Russia to smash Ukraine. Unless they get Crimea back, that will continue forever, even if there's a peace deal. Right, because as they see it, if Russia is still in Crimea, it's always going to be able to threaten the south of Ukraine, peace deal or not. Luke, you talked about the fact that despite the tanks and the men on both sides, it's actually because of drones in large part that this war has become a stalemate. Do you think military planners elsewhere in the world are looking at that and drawing lessons for their own wars? I think they should be. Modern warfare has changed. Bear in mind, Ukraine has no navy, but it's just chased the Russians out of the Black Sea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's quite impressive when you've got no navy yourself. I mean, what's happening is that the Russians were going out on patrol with a half a billion dollar platform, and the Ukrainians were sinking it with a $20,000 drone. Mm. Now, that is asymmetric warfare in its most classic form. And frankly, if I were the UK Defence Secretary, I would be cancelling plans to build an aircraft carrier. Coming up, can anything break a stalemate in Ukraine? Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? 
A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Luke, it sounds like over the past two years, Ukraine has performed miraculous things on the battlefield, kind of on the cheap, like not getting the equipment that they say that they need. But we've now reached a point of the war where its future will be decided in Washington, in the EU, based on the kinds of weapons and equipment that they're now able to send to Ukraine. The key thing here is victory. I mean, if I was sitting opposite Jake Sullivan, I I would say, look, Jake, what is America going to do to help the Ukrainians win? Because things like Atakams, this this long-range artillery system, which the Ukrainians have just got, they've been asking for for a year and a half, and it seems the Americans were unwilling to hand it over because they're worried about escalation. Mm. I mean, we're beyond that. So many people have died. And the more systems like that which are given to Ukraine, the easier it is for them to smash up Russian logistics and to win the war, to strike targets away from the front line. So almost the kind of task of Zelensky and his team is to keep the Europeans and the Americans on board, but also to get them to commit to Ukraine actually defeating Russia. We're heading into a winter that's going to be difficult for Ukraine. From your conversations with people on the ground, did they have any hope that when spring comes, better things will be there for Ukraine? I would not write Ukraine off. What's interesting is that you sort of think in time of war, culture would sink. In fact, the reverse has happened. Ukrainians are reading more books than ever before. The publishing industry is absolutely massive at the moment. And streets named after Alexander Pushkin, the Russian national poet, have been have been renamed. Soviet statues and monuments have, have been toppled. New stories are being written. Films are being made. Novels are being written. You know, poems are being composed. I mean, you could make a case saying that the Ukrainians have already won insofar as they've survived the initial Russian onslaught, but but they, they they know what their country is, they know what their culture is, they know what their language is. Everybody is trying to do something, whether it's hipsters raising money for the Ukrainian army by playing a gig in a bar or people volunteering to serve on the front line. And Putin's category error at the beginning was to think that he was just fighting against Zelensky and the Ukrainian army and that Most Ukrainians were actually Russians who would accept, even welcome his takeover. And the reality is that Ukraine has become this great superorganism where Russia is fighting 40 million people, including women, including older people. It's not just young men. Everybody is struggling to victory and no one is going to stop. 
Luke, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Luke Harding, a senior international correspondent with The Guardian. His work from Ukraine is at theguardian.com, including an on-the-ground video from inside a Ukrainian field hospital. You'll find that under Luke's profile at The Guardian. His book on the first year of the war is called Invasion, and it's available online now at The Guardian Bookshop. And that is it for today. I'm Michael Safi, and this episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Homa Khalili, and we're back with you tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.